For a lot of us, Pokemon was a huge part of our childhood. The dream we could travel with fantastic creatures on grand adventures was in the forefront of so many kids' minds. This week on Scheduled for Launch, join me, Zach Walsh, as I speak with Marshall about his game, Pokemon Tales. Explore regions of your own creation, alone or with friends in this narratively driven game that captures a feeling for the franchise in a spectacular way. We talk about adaption, testing, and of course, Pokemon. Welcome to Schedule for Launch, a podcast to discover the projects that you may have missed. This week, I am incredibly excited to be joined by another wonderful creator. Marshall, thank you so much for joining me this week on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite, I guess, franchises in general today. And something that's unofficially made and done by that, and I love it. We're going to be talking about Pokemon Tales and Pokemon, and I'm really pumped to talk about this game. Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad you brought me on. I'm so excited to talk about it, because, yeah, I, I love Pokemon, and obviously I love this game. It's exciting, too, because there was a there's a small string that happens on the show is when a creator who was on the show before introduces me to somebody new, and we were introduced by Moss Powers, who was recently on the show, and another phenomenal creator themselves. If you haven't listened to Moss's episodes, go listen to those. They're very good. But when he told me that you were making something for Pokemon, I got really into it posted a lot about Pokemon Tales for a while there, and I'm so pumped that it's released to the reception it has. Yeah, it's it's been great. I mean, Moss has been a huge advocate since, like, the beginning. Like, I credit I credit him in the end of it, because it's like, I'm not sure if I would have mm-hmm. finished it without, like, his support, uh, honestly. But, yeah, the and the launch was really surprisingly good, so it's it's yeah. been good all the way. Yeah, and we're going to get into that stuff in just a moment. But, Marshall, before we really dive into Pokemon Tales, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Marshall. I, I've been well, I've been designing this game, depending on how you look at it, for about three years. I've really been hard designing games in general for probably about a year and a half. Um, though okay. most everything I've done has come out in probably the last four to five months. Yeah. Um. I probably just may come up later, but I go by Iron Echo Games on mm-hmm. Twitter and Itch, so that's where if anyone wants to see the other stuff I've done besides this, or obviously find this, that's where you can. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of the the simplest version of me. Um, <laughs> I I have a lot of thoughts about games and game design. Um, I have a I have a habit of taking games apart, including my own, uh, and that just kind of <laughs> led me to design. That's such an interesting way to go about it. I think something we also need to state before we go, and Marshall, what's your favorite Pokemon? Oh, see, that's a tough question because I shift between a few. So, like, when I'm feeling edgy, it's like the the Night Lycanroc, like full werewolf style. Yep. Um, When I'm feeling wholesome, um, it's Skidoo, uh, which I actually play (laughs) in an uh, an actual play Pokemon uh, TTRPG, uh, like, podcast, uh, or on Twitch. And uh, I, my my trainer has a skidoo there, um, so I think those two are probably top tier. And then like Gen One, I've always had a love for the whole Poliwhirl, Poliwag, uh, 
and um, Polyrath family. Oh, the Poly family is great too. For those of you yeah. out there wondering what mine is, it is Espion and Gudra. And Ooh, when I'm call. really feeling it, Gyarados, because I've never gotten past seeing Magikarp evolve. So, <laughs> yeah, that's no, it's such a powerful moment the first time that happens. It's just like mm-hmm. completely. I think that's the that was the first like really hard shift one to one that like you're like, what is happening? This is so radically different from what came before. Yeah. And when I think about it too, like maybe it's a little bit of a difference. Like that's a, that's an age thing coming around, but I played red and blue. Well, I started with Mm -hmm. gold and silver, but still like I was young and hadn't watched the show when I first played. So the surprises that happened. (laughs) Yeah. No, I started on original red and blue, watching the show, playing the original red and blue, and I ran outside. I remember running, to this day, I remember running outside the front yard and being like, Mom, Dad, I caught a Pidgey! And then being like, <laughs> what are you saying to me? I don't yeah. understand what any of the words you just said me. But it was powerful that first time. <laughs> so we are talking about a Pokemon tabletop role-playing game, and that is Pokemon Tales. Marshall... Can you tell us what Pokemon Tales is? Yes. So uh, Pokemon Tales is, I use the term collaborative storytelling, uh, mm-hmm. tabletop role-playing game, um, because it is a Pokemon game, but it is a Pokemon game that is very focused on narrative first. Yeah. Um, it uses a rule set that originated in like kind of the no dice, no masters, or belonging outside belonging space, um, which people may have heard of, like Wander Home is a big one yeah. um, in that space. Um, and so it started from there. It's kind of gone on its own path since then. But because of that, it's a little more narrative focused, free form. Um, and that's really kind of the space it sits in versus very crunchy or like overly methodical. Mm-hmm. And that's a large part about this game. You and I had been talking before and I haven't played it yet. I'm very excited to, but after learning about your other interview on another, another show, I'm super glad I didn't because this is going to be a bit of a different take. So there is a lot of collaboration that comes in with this game. And that's like a lot of that's design choice. How did you get from what I'm guessing was probably like a Pokemon battle simulation at first that kind of turned into this narrative flow. So, um, the, the the kind of story of this game that kind of takes down that path uh, is, so like three years ago, uh, I listened to a podcast called Roaring Trainers. It's a phenomenal Pokemon podcast. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but it was the first time that like I heard Pokemon really the way I always envisioned it could be. Uh, like it just, like the flow, the feeling, the potential. And I started digging around for all the games. And I, I have, at this point, read every single Pokemon RPG system that's out there. And I really wanted to run a system in one of them. I built my own region. Like, I started prepping for this. But, like, as a GM, I hate prep. Like, I just, I'm not good <laughs> at it. I burn out on it. Like, I just, I don't enjoy it. It's not how I like to run games. Um, I like to let, kind of create things with my players at the table. And all of those games are super heavy prep. Like, they're, yeah. you're either slowing the game to a stop in the middle, or you've prepped a massive amount. Um, like, pretty much everyone that's out there. And so, 
after trying these, I kept running into roadblocks for like none of these was going to work for at least my GM style. Um, and then about a year ago, I found Pokemon Dungeon Crawler by that Sir John Battle, um, which is like this very OSR dungeon crawly Pokemon game. Um, like it's, it's written, I think it uses like an into the odd base rule set. Like it's very, like, it's very OSR and you're just crawling through dungeons, but it's Pokemon. And I played it a lot. Like, I think I've probably played it more, I would argue, than almost anyone uh, out there, because I don't know how much it blew <laughs> up. Like, I, I played that game a lot. Um, and what I found I loved about it was that it didn't um, it didn't try to replicate the games and all the, its mechanics, but it still felt like Pokemon. And that kind of opened this, like, spot in my brain. I was like, oh, you don't have to replicate this. You just have to get the spirit right. And yeah. so I started, like, um, first I built trainer rules for that. So for a long time, uh, Pokemon Tales, which was like Pokemon Journeys or Pokemon Quest, I have a couple of different names for it along the way, was this kind of like OSRE system. Uh, my first play test was a hex crawl. Um, I still have that, like, hex. I plan to release it for Pokemon Tales at some point, but it was uh, a hex crawl across a hex map. You use these OSR style kind of combat rules for the Pokemon, and then the trainers use uh, a hack of lasers and feelings. Um, so you had uh, compassion and conflict were the two things instead of lasers and feelings. Okay. Because I wanted the trainer rules to feel very light and easy and all the crunch to be on the Pokemon side. Yeah. I ran it and my players loved it and it flowed pretty well, but I was just like, this still isn't it. And that's when I kind of went back to the drawing board. I'm like, what did I want? What did I want to keep? And I really loved Wander Home. Um, at that point, I looked Wander Home conceptually because this was during the Kickstarter and all you could get was like the quick start for it. But I still oh, okay. like, I grasped how the game worked and was really, like, really obsessed with a lot of how it was presenting things. And so I started experimenting in that space, and that's where I kind of got to this, like, kind of collaborative space from, because I wanted this kind of, like, I still had this kind of OSR flow mindset, but the actual gameplay base came from this very collaborative storytelling-style rule set. I think one of the best things, too, is how direct... And approachable that collaborative nature is in Pokemon Tales. Because right now, if I open the PDF, you and I could start playing a game this very second. Like, mm -hmm. it's that easy. So, imagine we're doing that. What would we need to actually start this game? All you need, uh, we would we would need probably copies of the sheets maybe printed out. We could scratch our own, but it's honestly easier to print them or have them virtually. Um, yeah. And the sh the sheets are for every main element of the game. So we have sheets for the region, sheets for the trainers, sheets for the Pokemon, sheets for the locales, like the locations we visit, and then sheets for the weather and maybe towns if we stop into a town. And like we would just start, we'd probably start writing up a region sheet first because I think that's the best way to kind of mm -hmm. balance your expectation. Um, I I very much borrowed from Ironsworn in that. Uh, Ironsworn does this great thing where you kind of set up your version of the continent you're exploring by agreeing how much and how little you want of certain thematic elements. Yeah. And that was how I wanted to tool the regions was this idea that you sit down and you just basically turn the the lever or turn the dial up or down on what iconic Pokemon elements you want more of because these elements are in every region of Pokemon, but some of them are you know turned up to an eleven and some and some are 
almost absent in others. Um, yeah. So that would probably be where we jump in first and just uh, start picking out and kind of figuring out our, our region. Now, you had mentioned them in that that little blurb about how we'd start, but locales are arguably where most of the action is going to be happening in these games, and they mm-hmm. are incredibly cooperative. What's a locale? Yeah, so a locale is any area that you're entering um, that is not a town, essentially. So any place, um, a locale can be as small as a building. Like when, if you're doing like a kind of crawl through a building, it can be that, or it can be most often it's, you know, a desert, a forest. It is it is those places outside the towns in your Pokemon game, your Route 1, your Route 2, your Mount Moon. It's, it's all those spaces you visit, and you build those together um, at the table before you explore them. Uh, so you're kind of deciding what they should be together and building them piece by piece until you have enough together to jump in and start actually moving through them. And there are various types. There's You have a bunch of prompts there, such as the mm-hmm. theme, the environment, native type of Pokemon, and observed species. And I think that's where people are really going to start picking things in is being able to put down Pokemon that they want to have in these areas. Yeah, I really wanted to try and make it to where it was like, you could make any... I literally went through the games, and I was like, can I build this? Can I build this? Can I build this? With the tools I have, like every place, Route 1 through Elite 4 of like each gen. Um, and so you start, yeah, with the environment. You, you set up where you're going through what the type of thing is, and then, yeah, we have themes, so you can pile on you know, as many or as little themes to kind of shape it to fit the type of style you you want for that place. And then, yeah, picking your, your native types so you have those kind of easy reference points of like, okay, that kind of tells the story of the place too, right? Because a forest that has fairies and ghosts is different from a forest that's full of bugs. And yeah. so just by picking those types, you set the tone of the place a little bit as well. And then... As a group, just picking a few of those observed species that you're going to see there is great because it gives you a quick reference. You're not going, uh, uh, every time you need to pull a Pokemon. You have, you know, five or six to, to pull from easily, and then you can add more if you like. You have the native types to reference, but you kind of, again, set the expectation in advance of what you expect to see there. Something that's also really interesting about locales to me is the the progress mechanic that's attached to it. Could you explain how the progress mechanic works and what it does for the game? Yeah, absolutely. So in in some belonging outside belonging games, this is where my mindset came with this. In some of them, you have this issue where you kind of create a space and you're playing in it and you don't quite know when it's done or how long it should last. And you hit these kind of lulls where you're like, okay, what do we do next? And my favorite ones that have done it really well have what I call like a lever you can pull to like kick the story forward again. Um, I'm a really big fan of Sleepaway, which is like about camp counselors. It's a really good game, but it has a, it has an invoke the evil thing method where you pull the lever and then the story's moving again. So I wanted that kind of pacing in this. And so with the progress, how it works is that you have frames and frames are kind of broad scene setups that allow you to, to, frame different scenes that you're then going to roleplay. And so every time you use a frame, you set up the scene, depending on the framing of the scene, on whether it's good or potentially bad for your players, uh, gives you tokens that you can spend 
and then every frame you use accrues one progress. So every time you set a new scene, you roleplay through the scene, you get a progress for doing that scene, and then you move to the next. And so it keeps the story moving um, and allows the game to keep flowing. You always know what you have to do next. If we're done with the scene, we're grabbing a new frame. If we're still in the scene, then we're finishing out this scene. Maybe we're even throwing another frame in to complicate the scene. But we don't ever get to this point where we're like, huh, well, what do we do or what do we want? You have something to pull from always. Frames are an interesting little narrative device that I think other games, they they utilize them similarly, but it's kind of a way that any player can kind of get the action going again. Mm -hmm. And that's, as you mentioned, like the whole thing being collaborative, like, the, the nice thing about frames is that anyone can just go, I want this to happen, find the frame that fits it, and like set up the next scene. So you're, you're always kind of having someone who can like help add a new point and shape how they want the narrative to maybe kind of flow going forward. And you're kind of crowdsourcing those ideas in the moment, which again stops it from slowing down. Mm-hmm. There is one other very important part that plays into both progress and locales, and that's camping. How does camping work? What exactly does it do? Again, for me, Pokemon is kind of about the journey, and, like, I just love the feeling of making camp. I love that addition in Sword and Shield where you could kind of, like, sit with yeah. your Pokemon and play with them around, like, the, the, the curry pot. Like, everything about that is just, like, checks box, exactly what I wanted. Uh, and so camps are how you recover. Uh, and so you, you, you spend two of your progress. So uh, as progress builds up, I, I think I forgot to say this in the last section, as progress builds up, you spend progress to exit the locale. So once you get to whatever you've agreed upon to be the the number you need, whether it's five or ten is common, but you can go beyond that, um, you spend that, and that's how you move on from the location. Uh, camping is another way you spend progress, and it's how you recover. So you only spend two, and that gives you this kind of dedicated scene where you all make camp, and while you're camping, you can accrue tokens. Um, and you do that by describing how you're bonding with your Pokemon, describing how you're bonding with the trainers who are there with you, and then you can spend those tokens to heal your Pokemon by shifting their, their health back up. And so it's a way to, if your Pokemon are healthy, you can just farm a lot of tokens. But you do that through bonding with your Pokemon and bonding with these other players. Mm-hmm. And like really just fleshing out those kind of just um, nice scenes between each other. Which I think is important in a Pokemon game. Yeah, it's that human and animal interaction part that mm-hmm. Pokemon's also known for. It's the bonding, it's the the power of friendship, love, all that stuff. But these are those small moments before those big moments come up. Yeah. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the theory that like incentivize what you actually want to happen in the game. Yeah. And like I wanted bonding with each other and with the Pokemon to be a core piece of that. So mm-hmm. that being one of the easiest ways for you to like accrue tokens, not force, but like frankly the best way to go about it. Um, was my, one of my kind of ways of doing that. And that makes total sense to me, especially when you've got a bit of a different tone than other games. You're trying to be not so crunchy and mm-hmm. be able to make a narrative game. But obviously this is Pokemon and something that's still really important. And this happens throughout those locales is battles. How does battling work in Pokemon Tales? Yeah, so uh, battles um, is is kind of the place where I probably most diverted from like the, the no dice, no masters, blowing outside, blowing, whatever term you want to use formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in a lot of games that do that, there's kind of like just a spend a token 
resolve a problem type mentality. Um, yeah. Usually you accrue tokens by like making a sacrifice or, or losing something and you spend tokens to accomplish things and to succeed. And this still has that. That's how a lot of non-battle trainer things work. And I even include a caveat that if you want to just resolve your battles that way, if that's not what's important to you about Pokemon, you absolutely can just do the spin token method. But yeah. I, I felt I would be cheating people if I didn't have a battle system in a Pokemon game. So how it works is um, you set up your Pokemon and building your Pokemon is like the easiest thing in the world for opposing or yours. You, you pick a name, you pick a species, pick a nature, and you pick a type. Uh, and then when you get into a battle, you have really two shifting scales. You have the health scale, which determines where your, where your health is at. Um, that goes healthy, weakened, critical, or fainted. And then you have the effective scale. And that is a way of basically portraying uh, type advantage, but also like narrative and like combat advantage as well. Um, and that shifts from super effective to effective to neutral to resistant to super resistant. You also have focus, which is kind of like a separate currency um, that you can use to kind of shift the combat in like your favor. Um, and that is how you represent how how developed your Pokemon is. Like one of the ways you spend experience is to give them more focus to make them more qualified battlers. Yeah. Uh, and then the way you navigate those two scales um, is through the abilities, which take everything that you would usually do in a Pokemon battle and kind of concise them down into five core mechanics. Uh, attack, which was where you spend a token to inflict one harm. Growl, which is where you decrease an opponent's position on the effective scale. Uh, Leer, where you increase your own or an ally's position on the effective scale. And then rest where you gain a token back. And then there's switch if you want to swap your Pokemon out. Yeah. And I use those terms, and I always have to make sure to clarify in the texture with people that it's not saying that you're only using literally the move Growl or Leer, which obviously are familiar names to people, but I wanted to use terms that people who've played Pokemon are familiar with. Those are very early on moves that do those things. Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of gives people a reference point. But in using those five things, those can really sum up anything you're doing in a battle. So you yeah. might reference, like, you know, I might use Thundershock to attack. Or I might use Thunder Wave to growl by decreasing my opponent's effectiveness by essentially paralyzing them. Or yeah. I might use, you know, s Strength to... Strength could be something where I'm either buffing myself up and it's like a leer, or it could be actually the strength move where you're throwing them down and that's like an attack. So it's more narrative, and you're translating what you actually want to do narratively into those like five mechanical options to kind of cover anything you might do in that. To me, the highlight of this is that people whose favorite Pokemon might be something a little weaker can shine in this system because you could have your, your ripped Caterpie if you want it. Like, if that's really who you want to be running for this game, you can have that super strong Caterpie in this system. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually, I have a running joke um, whenever I introduce new people to the game and they ask me what Pokemon can they pick for their starter. It's like, you can pick anything, but you have to narratively justify why your Intake got rocked by a Rattata. Because it's going to start at the same base power level. So, like, yeah. uh, it, it kind of brings that thing even, but yet yeah, it opens the door, and that that's Pokemon. Like, maybe not the games, but when you expand the broader Pokemon narrative, Ash's Pikachu can, 
you know, punch Mewtwo in the mouth. It doesn't matter. Like, it's just, it's heart, it's toughness, it's, he loves that Pikachu, that Pikachu's going to be able to do that. And, um, and that's kind of the spirit I wanted to capture, because, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't play optimally. My favorite Pokemon aren't, aren't optimal. No. I'm, I'm a grass type stan, and anyone who plays competitively Hell will dunk yeah. on grass types anytime <laughs> they get a chance. I love me some grass types. Yeah, it's, I think, one of the best things, too, that comes into this game is that there are a handful of different ways you can advance your Pokemon and specialize them. So people are listening to this being like, well, there's no strategy with that. There's a little bit more to this because we have roles as well. What are roles? How do they affect battling? Yeah, absolutely. So roles are how you kind of specialize your Pokemon. Um, So you take a role to pick what area you want to be a little more skilled at. So if I am, um, say, a striker, then I am saying I want to be better at attacking. And what that does is reduce the token cost it costs me to make an attack. So normally an attack inflicts one harm by spending one token. If I'm a strike specialist, then I get to decrease that uh, token cost down to where I can actually attack for free. Um, and same thing with the others. So uh, if I'm better at, want to be better at growl, then I can be uh, like a sabotage specialist, and that will allow me to either decrease my opponent's effectiveness more on the effective scale, so impede them faster, or mm-hmm. afflict multiple opponents. And same thing for boost, for Lear allows me to boost multiple allies or myself further. Um, same thing, I can do like a more recovery specialty where it increases my rest so I get more tokens back. And you can specialize each of your Pokemon with these roles. So you might have a Pokemon who's just thrown out there to try and take your Pokemon's uh, your opponent's effectiveness down or to try and recover your tokens or whatever it might be. And another piece I, I didn't go uh, mention in the effective scale is like, as you shift on that scale, the big thing that's doing is either upgrading your harm or it is um, increasing your token cost. So if you're resistant or super resistant against someone, if you're having to spend two or three tokens normally to be able to inflict one harm that can burn through your tokens very quickly. And yeah. so the ability to boost yourself back up, drop someone into that state, or reduce the cost of those tokens by being a striker puts a lot of strategy into how you navigate the flow of combat and allows a system that doesn't have any randomness in it to still not be determined because it there really is a strategic element of how you go about shifting your opponents, how you work together with your allies, and how you navigate the effectiveness, the health, and these independent move options and the roles you can assign to make yourself better at those things. It's kind of this balancing act in your own Pokemon trying to get your tokens up, decrease their effect, the opponent's effectiveness, increase your your allies' effectiveness. There's a lot of moving pieces when you actually start getting into the nitty-gritty of it, and we haven't even really touched on focus yet. So do you want to give us a brief talk about what focus is? Yeah, absolutely. So focus is just that kind of additional piece to make it flow. Um, so what focus does, it can do one of two things. Um, you can spend it to either disregard all harm or one attack. Uh, so that means even if your opponent, say, has, you know, they're at the super effective range and they're shooting three harm your direction, that could take you from healthy to fainted in one hit. So that's going to be something you're going to have to burn a focus if you don't want to drop to do. What focus can also do is uh, allow you to burn it to disregard the effective scale for one attack. 
So if you're down and super resistant, but you've got some focus built up and you just want to pound away at someone and inflict that harm and not worry about trying to get yourself back up, you can do that uh, as well, burn that focus, and then be able to push through and hit them. And then technically the third thing it does is um, when you're battling opposing Pokemon uh, and you're battling multiple people versus one Pokemon, I also add in a caveat where the more focus a Pokemon has, the more actions it gets in a round if you're fighting multiple people versus one. So that's how you kind of balance out the action economy. It's like if you and me and maybe one other person are taking on this Gyarados, but, and it's three of us versus that one Gyarados. If that Gyarados is four focus, that Gyarados gets five actions that turn. So it can buff up itself with a growl. It can leer. It can attack. Now it still has to spend tokens for those actions. So there's still some restriction there where we're not just getting piled on like you might, like in a, say a D and D you wouldn't want to give the opponent that many actions right in a, on the same initiative because they would just pile into you. But in this, you're restricted by the token, so they're spending some of that time buffing and decreasing, regaining their own token, stuff like that. Uh-huh. And it gives you this effect in those type of boss battle situations where as you attack them, and they're forced to burn focus to stop you, they're getting less attacks round by round. So as you beat these like opposing Pokemon down, they actually get less moves, so you feel the momentum of the battle shift in your favor. They start to slow down. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we should also hit on this too before we actually move on. Two of the most important parts of any Pokemon game in general comes down to two really important Pokemon brands, and that's evolution and capturing the Pokemon that you find. How do these two mechanics kind of work in Pokemon Tales? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so capturing is, is really relatively simple. So if you are... First of all, if you're just befriending a Pokemon, work it out in the narrative. Like it'll, yeah. you can, you'll probably end up spending a token to do it through how that bond happens. But if it's like a battle style traditional capture, um, all you have to do is you have to get that Pokemon down to where they are weakened or critical. So you have to drop their health scale, and you also have to burn through all of their focus that they used to can use to shrug off damage. Because if they still have focus, they can burn that to basically shrug off that Pokeball. Yeah. And then once you've got them into that point. Then you just spend a token, and you're able to throw that Pokeball and capture them. Um, once you've got them, um, then they transition over to your team. You build your own sheet for them and go from there. For evolution, um, that is that is a, a something I purely leave up to narrative timing. Um, but I added a guidance point of, hey, I recommend that it's about when you've upgraded their focus to at least two or higher, their kind of max focus, because it starts at one, um, two or higher is probably good for a second stage, and three or higher is good for a final stage. Um, but I let people kind of dictate that flow in the narrative, because like, that's really almost more of a story of the Pokemon's growth thing. So I didn't want to overly cap that, because there's, there's something about that kind of evolution in a key moment of like a certain battle, or like a specific time where it just makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that evolution isn't shifting the Pokemon stats. So it's not as like critical on when that timing happens. It's more that the stats tell you when it's powerful enough that that evolution should make sense okay. in terms of the focus than it is that now because you've evolved, you're so much stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last piece I realized as you mentioned that, um, that I didn't quite touch on in the effective scale, um, typing. 
It's a big part oh, of yes. Pokemon. Um, <laughs> Super so important. How all that works. So this was one of the big changes I had to make because this is one of the things where I feel like a lot of Pokemon games slow down when you don't have a computer doing all the math in the background for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is typing gets tricky, particularly when every move is typed. And then you, how does that correlate? Blah, 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 with like the types they have. So yep. how typing works in this is it is it is determined purely by the type your Pokemon is. So your moves do not have a type flavoring to them. Um, it is the types your Pokemon, you know, starts with their default types. And how that works is when you start a battle, you compare your Pokemon's type against every opponent. Um, so say I have a Pikachu. Pikachu's electric type. I'm going to go around the battlefield and compare against, say, the... Uh, the squirrel that's there that's water, great. I'm going to bump up one effectiveness point. So I'm going to shift from neutral to effective for my starting place on the effective scale because I'm effective against one of my opponents. But say then there's also uh, a Bulbasaur that's in there. It's resistant to electric. Then I drop back down to neutral. Um, say there was a, you know, a Diglett that's ground, I would drop two points because it would normally be immune. So that drops me two points down into the super resistant category. And so your framework of how effective you are in the battle is dictated by the kind of layout of the battlefield because trainers are smart and you can't, unless you're doing a split one-on-one battle, if you're in a kind of collective group battle, the person who's resistant to your Pokemon is going to send their Pokemon to battle you. So it's kind of more dictated by the state of the battlefield and then once you're in that combat, you can shift that through growls and leers as you're kind of changing the state of the battlefield to allow you to overcome those uh, resistances, which is in my opinion very true to the anime, like as a kid, it drove me nuts, but there's a key point where Ash beats Brock because Pikachu uses the water from the fire extinguisher to essentially shift its effectiveness scale up to be able to electrocute Onyx. And like in the game, that wouldn't make any sense, but in the in the in the um, uh, show, that's a great moment, um, and that's kind of the feeling I want to to enable in this. Yeah, we actually talked a little bit before this started, and that was one of the things that came up was I mentioned that it feels very anime inspired and that that wasn't the case originally but it's where it got to and i think that's the best way to look at pokemon tales when you're telling the stories is that it's it's not the games with all the mechanics whether you think they're easy mechanics or not it's not that it's the story of the world and the people in it yeah absolutely yeah like that's I've always felt that Pokemon was a series that, in terms of storytelling and, like, world-building, came short of its potential. It's such yeah. a strong premise. Um, and I feel like in a lot of media, it doesn't always stretch. It doesn't always do that. So, yeah, this was very much about being able to tell the type of Pokemon stories anyone wanted to tell and really have those kind of, like, grand moments. Um, and, and not and deprioritizing simulation or emulation of mechanics even though you can still get the feeling of those, to more prioritize being able to easily and naturally tell those like great story moments you wanted. Yeah. It's so important to think about it that way, too. Especially for a game like this. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of opportunity in that. Like A lot of people have nostalgia for Pokemon as a concept and an entity that have not mm. kept up with the games, or if they have, they do not care about half the mechanics that actually occur competitively. I mean, <laughs> Legends Arceus did incredible, and it pulled. So it focused much. on vibes more than uh, exactly replicating mechanics. 
Yeah. Like there is a market and like a desire for people to go. Yeah, no, Explore. I don't. I don't care about EVs and IVs. I just, I just want to like take Pikachu and have him be cute and go like battle something. Like that's what. Yeah. A lot of times people want. Exactly, and that's a huge, important thing that comes up a lot in this game. One of the things, though, that I guess it's a handful of things that works great for Pokemon Tales is the various methods of play that you have in this game. You can play it solo. You can play it with a a guide. There's a lot of different ways. So can you talk a little bit about what went into designing the different methods of play for Pokemon Tales? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that also was kind of like an interesting piece where it was half intentional and half realized along the way um, is that I... I enjoy solo play conceptually a lot. I really love Iron Swarm. Shows up in a lot of my influences, a lot of the games I play. Um, and I also really like running games from a guided perspective um, yeah. versus a full GM perspective. I'm very, like, I like collaborative storytelling. I like working as a group. I don't like doing a lot of prep in advance, so that, like, traditional GM role doesn't feel as comfortable to me. Um, and so what I found as I was making the game is that through the mechanics, there was nothing that restricted it from doing these things. So, like, for solo play, because everything is through these kind of progress framework storytelling modes that, like, drive it forward, and because you're building it as you go, there's no reason someone has to write it for you or do these things in the background. Even running the opposing Pokemon, you can kind of do that a lot of, like, what you feel they would do, and they're very easy to make on the fly. Um, and then for the guide, guided, like, really, I, I looked at this three kind of varieties. You could have group play where there's no guide at all, um, yeah. group play where there is someone kind of taking that guiding role, and then what I called fully guided play, which most people would recognize as traditional GM-led. Um, and most times I run it, I, I vary between the two. If people are new, I do group play with a guide, because that allows me to step back and kind of help people, it's... When you're not doing fully guided, it's not so much that you're steering the game. What you're doing is giving people uh, the option to not worry about the mechanics. That's what you're there for. So yeah. what you're doing is saying, what do you do? What do you think happens? What do you think would be cool? And then they say what it is, and you go, oh, great, that's this frame. Or, oh, that's this ability. And so the game is designed around the idea that you say what happens in the story, and there's a mechanic to translate that into the game. And so the group play with the guide is just someone being that kind of translator to help facilitate that. And so that's great to have, and it's especially good when people are new. Once everyone kind of has a hang for the game, hang of the game, you don't necessarily need that. It's still welcome if someone wants to do that. But once you kind of all understand the flow and the mechanics of it, then you can really shift to this kind of group play collaborative space where everyone's just building off each other and working together and adding in ideas and taking turns on who controls what, um, and then you don't need that guided space. But again, in the spirit of I want everyone to be able to kind of do their own Pokemon thing, there is still very much a space where I want to tell a Pokemon story, I have my own region, I have all this stuff prepared in advance. Like, I don't want that person to be left out by, that's a fundamental thing to do, and like, good on you for having all that stuff like ready and wanting to tell that type of story. So fully guided play still fully works. The real change there is that um, 
you're using most of the frames, like the locale frames. You're if you're the if you're doing fully guided, usually the the guide is controlling that almost entirely. The mm-hmm. the players are still doing trainer actions, Pokemon battles, all that stuff, but the guide is really setting up the scenes. But it still supports that. that it still makes it a lot easier to do as a GM on the fly because you still have all these prompts, you still have all these ideas. So I can still do some light prep work ahead of time, but still be able to kind of react and adjust in the moment using the frames um, and just kind of set those up. And then when you're doing that style, because the players aren't interacting, my recommendation for that piece is I just tell them to kind of give the players tokens whenever they do something that would have, if the players had picked that frame, given them tokens. So the guy doesn't worry about their own tokens. They're just saying, oh, hey, this is a negative thing. Normally, if you had picked this for yourself, you had gotten tokens. So here's tokens for it because this is happening to you. That makes total sense to me. And I think it's also great that you've designed a way to support that. A huge thing is a lot of people who come to these games have played something that is a bigger release and they may not have been happy with it, but that's what they know. Mm -hmm. A 5e player, for instance, transferring to Pokemon Tales, who was a game master in, in 5e, might have a bit of a hard time adjusting to something where there's not really anybody leading the story. It, it kind of feels like you can accidentally be stepping on somebody's toes when you haven't flexed that that skill. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is definitely a different approach, and so yeah, I wanted to have that option. And also, like sometimes people have ideas for things that kind of need that like removal, where you do kind of need someone yeah. to take the lead because you don't want to like maybe give the all that away. And sometimes players do just want to not have to do collaborative sessions and just play a game, and I didn't also want, I didn't also want people who wanted to play it to have to sign up to necessarily collaboratively build if they didn't want to. They just want to have mm-hmm. that traditional experience where they're experiencing a story a GM has prepared for them. That's a completely valid option. I've run it that way myself. I have, like, some pre-made adventures I use. I've, I've run at conventions for, like, uh, for kind of pre-made interesting stories and dungeons I've made. Yeah, and I like that you have a little blurb that kind of gives you some some tips on how to run a long-form game. I think that's really important in this because I think one of the strengths of Pokemon Tales is its flexibility. You don't need to really prep going into it. You don't need to have a super solid grasp on Pokemon at all, really. And you can play a one-off or like 50 sessions with the same characters. And you have provided ways for people to do that. People will appreciate that. That's the best way to put that. And I appreciate that. I really, I, I wanted to kind of make it a little bit easier because I think it's, it's easy to pigeonhole one way or the other. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted people to like, kind of have some tips that I had found on like approaching each because it, it started as a game much more for that long-term plan in mind. And then through playtesting, which we really discovered how well it worked for one-shots. Um, but in breaking down how to kind of approach that, because I think uh, you have to think about it a little bit differently when you're yes. doing those styles. And if you just kind of go into it the same way without kind of planning and thinking about it that way, you just might get into some headaches uh, 
that you because you didn't prepare or change your kind of a little bit of your method of thought depending on the style you're going for. Mm-hmm. And once again, that style could be going on a, a catching spree because your trainer's beliefs and dreams is that they're going to catch a bunch of Pokemon, or you can go and do contests, or you could stop a villain organization. Like there are so many options in this game, and it's it's so packed to the brim with content and from what i understand you're hoping to do more with it in the future is that true yeah i i wanted to i have i had so many ideas when i when i'm doing it but like i really wanted to kind of build out like a little bit more like i think core mechanics it really kind of hits what i needed it to um but in terms of helping people kind of process it give them some stuff to play with things like that Mm -hmm. um a couple of ideas slash works in progress I have for it. Um, one is I mentioned earlier that like the original interpretation of it was uh, what, or the original playtest was a hex crawl. Um, I have that map hack still. It's called Don Valley. Um, it's got like uh, a town and uh, sixteen hexes, and it's like it is a little valley hex crawl framed as a kind of a Pokemon trainer's license exam uh, that has a lot of varied settings and stuff like that, and. So I, I want to release that as like a, it gives you 16 pre-built locales with some ex- examples of each frame. And like, so they're, they're already pre-built. You just jump in and you go as a group and you can modify and change them as you needed. But like, if you didn't want to have to worry about that and you just wanted to jump into them and tell the story, I wanted to give people that option. Um, I mentioned earlier having an adventure I've run at conventions. Um, that is actually, uh, there's a dungeon crawl. Um, in that in that hex, um, okay, that works for Pokemon Tales because uh, that's another thing. It's it's a very narrative heavy game, but a lot of its roots again came from this kind of like OSR space. So I <laughs> wanted it to be a system that also facilitates hex crawls and dungeon crawls and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So there's there's an adventure in there that would either be its own standalone or would be part of that kind of hex map that is like a uh, exploring an ancient. Uh, it's a it's a in a graveyard, it is a underground ancient temple, and there's a Pokemon there that flips you. It's a Fakemon that flips you from modern era to like an ancient Egyptian style temple, and so okay. it's a, almost like a puzzle aspect because you're playing by switching between realities. Because in the modern reality, there's a Runarigus that haunts that place that is hunting okay. you down the longer you stay in it, um, mm. but you can't you can't stop it or solve it without going back to the ancient time and kind of unpacking what has happened and what led to this Runarigus that's actually like basically the ghost of a pharaoh from way back when. And you have to kind of unpack the mystery of this pharaoh and like um, use this kind of time flip to resolve and progress through this dungeon. Um, so I, I've thought about doing the standalone adventure or just including that in that hex kit. Uh, and then I also wanted to do because, I mean, the rules, I think, are very easy to process once you get them. Like, once you've played the game, even five minutes in, everyone's like, oh, I got it, I understand. But yeah. they're still very different. And I think sometimes approaching them, people can be like, oh, this is really cool, but I can't quite wrap my head around how this is going to land in play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I want to do with a quick start that kind of brings people into the system. I'm going to experiment with two. did a Twitter poll that was in quite quite conclusive on which people would prefer and I so I may end up doing both because of how I work um, but one thing I'd like to do is taking like the first couple of episodes of the series 
and basically saying, here's how you would play this as a Pokemon Tales game. Like, Ash is doing this frame. Ash is doing this action. Like, explaining yeah. it as if you're a player, telling those the story of those episodes through the game, just to give people a, a reference point of, like, how those mechanics could work in play. Mm-hmm. And then I've also experimented and have thought of, and will likely do, um, a basically soft choose-your-own-adventure short module that basically takes you from here's your first Pokemon to, like, here's your first town, um, with kind of, like, a narrowed scope. So you're making choices and kind of using the mechanics in play in a more, like, scripted kind of experience so you can kind of, again, feel how they kind of play out. Hmm. All right, that makes sense to me. Oh, my goodness. Marshall, I've just realized how long we've been recording, so I think we got to start moving yeah. into the uh, the next little part of this and start wrapping up there. So I know that you've heard a couple of the episodes, but I'd like to ask you, what advice can you give to people looking to make their own games, but they don't really know where to start? Yeah, I I... I listen to your episodes, so I know you asked this question, so I was actually thinking about this a lot. I, <laughs> I have a lot of different thoughts on it, but I didn't want to give overly familiar or generic advice. Um, yeah. Like, you know, there's great things like just write, uh, just finish something, like a lot of stuff like that. But I think the biggest thing I would tell people is, like, two things is try and find someone else who's just throwing stuff together and just talk it through with them. Having that encouraging voice really helps so much. Uh-huh. Uh, so just be willing to kind of talk to people and like, and then the other thing is just try your stuff, just release your stuff. Like we also, we all obsess on like perfectionism too much and it doesn't matter. You can come back and like do second or third editions or just go, oops, I forgot that and re-upload it. Like don't obsess over perfection like there there's a there's an online mentality that's that's very valid of like playtest 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 which is completely true you should playtest you should polish out your systems when you can but if you can't get those perfect playtests and you've got a good feel for it throw it up maybe people will play it and they'll tell you what worked and what didn't and you can go back yeah. and fix it like it's okay no one's going to like hunt you down and this wasn't playtested efficiently you well, how dare you release this? Like, no one's going to do that. Like, there's so many things out there. They're mm-hmm. very professionally well-selling games that have clearly not been as playtested as they yeah. should. So don't <laughs> let that stop you on your first game. That's really solid advice. I really appreciate that. Marshall, it's been great having you. Where can people find more about you and the rest of your work? I know that you've released some other stuff recently, and I'm very excited about that stuff, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on Twitter, you can find me at Iron Echo Games. Um, I talk about game design stuff a lot, um, and just things I find interesting. I'm also usually happy to run my games. So if there's ever any, like, you want to try something I have, feel free to hop on there and, like, at me, send me a message and be like, Hey, I'd like to try this. Don't have anyone to play it with. I've pretty much found the time to run any of my stuff for anyone who's been interested. <laughs> um, whenever they said anything, that's I think why my launch went well because I actually let people try a lot of it. Um, yeah, and then also on itch, ironechogames.itch.io, um, you can find everything I've released. I've got what four, or five games up there now. Um, crawl, I think so. go channel this, 
Wolves at the Gate, which is my most recent one, um, uh-huh. which is uh, raising money for a good cause. So that one's completely yeah, free, but uh, requesting a donation. So definitely worth If you were going to check out anything else I did because of the, the nature of that one and what it's for, I'd really recommend that one. Um, but yeah, that's that's really the two spaces where I'd say I'm at. Oh, and I, I would be bereft not to mention this. Uh, I stream with Live from the Apocalypse every other Tuesday. It's also oh. for charity. Um, we do a Pokemon theme. So if you like Pokemon TTRPGs, it's called Missing Numbers. We do it every other Tuesday. So this coming Tuesday, we'll be streaming again. It's a very wholesome sports anime. Also meets Eldritch Horror podcast, playing with kind of the missing numbers, missing no aspect of it. Uh, it's very fun. And previously, we were raising money for the Surfrider Foundation, which is ocean conservation. Now we're raising money for Planned Parenthood. So it's also a great cause. Um, any donations goes towards that. Beautiful. As always, audience, all those links are going to be down in the description below. Marshall, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I I love this game. I'm going to be straight up. I love this game. It's incredible. Audience, you should go pick up Pokemon Tales and definitely look at Wolves at the Gate. I haven't had a chance to sit down and actually go through it yet, but it looks so good. And just phenomenal so thank you for joining me this week no thank you so much for having me this was a fantastic i'm glad you enjoyed it and audience thank you so much for listening marshall and pokemon tales have already launched so you can go get it and go start your journey choose your your favorite legendary pokemon and watch it get beaten up by a very small bug take care of yourselves have a good night and i'll see you on the next one Bye. Thank you so much to Marshall for joining me on the show this week. I mentioned it on Twitter a couple of weeks ago now, but I actually got a chance to play Pokemon Tales with Marshall Moss and one of their friends who, if you are listening to this, I am super sorry. I cannot remember your name for the life of me. Let me know, please. But anyways, back on subject. It was one of the best tabletop experiences I have ever had. Please go check out Marshall's Itch and help support the stuff that they're working on. If you're a fan of Pokemon, you're going to love this one so much. And as always, audience, thank you so much for listening. I forgot to mention last week, but we hit 500 followers on Twitter and we're just shy of hitting 1,500 listens, which is honestly totally ludicrous considering how we advertise the show here. So if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, please tell a friend. Word of mouth is the only way that we've grown here, and I'd love to keep it that way. I like to do a, a little bit more of a plug here while I have your ear. If you like actual play content, then there are two places that you can find me. Tale of the Void is a Veil of the Void stream and podcast on Twitch, which goes live Tuesdays at 8.30pm-ish Eastern Standard Time. That one is also available on basically all the podcast streaming apps, and it goes live bi-weekly. It's quite a few episodes behind, so if you want to catch up with us, you can follow us on the official Veil the Void Twitch stream, which is amazing, and you'll love it. You can also find me on Fool's Moon Entertainment's Twitch. That's at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Saturdays. We play Shadowrun. It's a lot of fun. I play a bad dad who's not that bad of being a dad, actually. I threw that out the window really quickly. 
Both are a lot of fun though, and there are some amazing people working behind them. It's so great to get out there and interact with you all on these live streams. So I'd love to see more of you around. Next weekend though, we have our very first episode totally dedicated to a new comic. Miss Raina joins me to talk about the amazing Black Rhapsody, which is this music meets magical girl meets eldritch horror comic. It's awesome, and you should 100% go check it out for yourself before the episode. Until then, though, take care of yourselves. Have a good week. I'll see you on the next one.